Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, the story I didn't think I could talk about, but I found out that I can talk about it, and I'm really excited to do so. It's Celebration Florida and Ong's Hat, New Jersey. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. everyone and welcome to episode six of season four aka 4.06 and this is a show that i have been waiting to do for months it always seems like it's the sixth episode of the season that i get really excited to do i don't know why that always just seems to be the be the good one i guess it, i guess it takes five episodes every season for me to 
find my groove again. But I've wanted to talk about this story since like the inception of the podcast, but very, very quickly found out like eh, it takes place in like Orlando, Florida, which is uh, not a small town. It's not even a small city. So it's like it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the show. So I can't talk about it. But then I was watching some YouTube videos and I was making my way through uh, Wang's kind of internet mystery videos that he does. And I never watched his John Titer video because I was like, oh, I know the story of John Titer. Um, I don't need to watch that video. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll watch some of these other ones. Uh, turns out I don't know shit about the John Titer story. And so I, you know, what happens when you, you binge watch a new, a new YouTubers videos that you dig, you kind of get to the point to where you've watched almost all of them. So I did end up watching his video on John Titer and he, uh, he talked about tracing the ISP addresses of John Titer's, uh, post that he made back in 2000 and 2001 and if you don't know who John Titer is, he is a time traveler that posted on the Coast to Coast Meshes boards back in 2000 and 2001. Don't worry, we're going to get into all of the gobbledygook here in a little bit. But anyway, the ISP addresses were traced, and they were traced back to not Orlando, but to a small town very near Orlando, I believe, called Celebration, Florida. So I think it was one of those things where, like, I live in a town... I live in a very small town that's close to a larger town called Troy. But if I'm out in Colorado and someone asks me where I'm from, I don't say Troy, Ohio, because they aren't going to know where that is. I say something like Dayton, Ohio, because we're only 20 minutes north of Dayton. And then they kind of go, oh, Dayton, yeah. I think that's the case here. It happened, you know, all, a, lot of, a lot of ties to the story are in Celebration, Florida, but if you ask you know, someone on the street who lives nowhere near Florida, if they know where Celebration Florida is, they will say no. But if you say, how about Orlando, they will say yes. So I think that's the issue here, but we're going to talk about all of this. And so we're going to start with the time traveler, John Titer, and then we are going to go into Ong's Hat, which is about a different kind of travel. Uh, and they are both linked by a person that, once again, will get into all of it, and it will all become clear very, very soon. But before we go on too much further, I would like to congratulate Stephanie from Canton, Ohio. She is our newest member of the Patreon. Uh, so welcome aboard. This is your official shout-out on the show. I've already sent her her, her buttons and her stickers and all that stuff. Uh, I think I did it yesterday, so hopefully it'll be there soon, Stephanie. And uh, I just want to let everyone know if if this is not enough time travelly time travelly goodness for you, and you you crave more, then hop over to the Patreon and sign up at that five dollar level to get uh, the Backroads podcast, the exclusive podcast that you can only get on Patreon which essentially has evolved into, very quickly, evolved into extensions of these main episodes. So we're going to talk about John Titer. We're going to talk about Ong's Hat. We're going to talk about uh, travel to different times, different dimensions tonight. And so what I'm going to do in the Backroads 
podcast is I'm going to extend this conversation and we're going to talk about a couple of other much more kooky uh, time travel tales. One might involve a man who sells his own time machine that you may or may not have to attach to your genitals. And then we're going to talk about a very mysterious figure, like many mysterious time travelers, travelers who called in the coast to coast in the late 90s, called, uh, I think it's Single 7 or maybe Signal 7. It's it's I'm blanking off the top of my head, but I'll look it up and figure it all out. But we will be talking more crazy time travel stories in the STS Backroads extension that will come out next week that will be like a companion to this show. But we've done four episodes of the Backroads, and they are all on there, and they all, most of them, except the first one, which we just talked about, Black Eyed Kids, all uh, kind of butt up against episodes that we have done. So, you know, they're all just kind of a companion, an extension to this main show. So head on over to patreon.com slash stscast to find all those information, all that information, sorry. You can also find it uh, at stscast.com. At the top of the page, there is a support link, which will take you right to the Patreon play uh, page. So if that's something you're interested in, it would it'll really help the show out. You'll get some great content, stickers, buttons, extra shows, the music, uh, MP3s of the music that I make. I'm writing some blog posts. I'm doing some book reviews. Uh, I have, you know, we have a Facebook group, a private Facebook group, where I just posted a bunch of pictures of our of my recent trip to the TNT area in Point Pleasant, uh, which is more of that coming. We've done, we did some, me and a friend did some Estes Method sessions over there, uh, which I'm going to be kind of making a probably a video about, and I'll let everyone know about that. But you know, and if you go to the Patreon and sign up, you'll probably get early access to any videos I make. I've very quickly kind of dived into videos quicker than I thought I would. So that's quickly, I'm saying quickly a lot, quickly, 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 uh, will become a thing more and more. And we'll probably give Patreon members some sort of exclusive access to videos that I make, get them, you know, you'll get them early before they go up on YouTube, things like that. But enough of me lollygagging about the Patreon and everything. Let's get in to uh, Celebration Florida and the story of John Titer. Hi there, I'm Oz from the Oddball Aussie Podcast. Do you enjoy hearing about ufology, the paranormal, cryptids, and anything else that's strange or unknown? If so, then my show might just be for you. Join me for a different topic once a week and a midweek show that's all about listeners' true stories. Follow me on Twitter at Aussie Oddball or email me at theoddballaussie at hotmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show and stay safe out there in the weird. Celebration Florida lives very close to Disney World, and with good reason. The town, with a current population of around 7,500 or so, was started and was developed in 1996 by the Walt Disney Company itself. It's not some Disney-themed town, however. In fact, Disney is now mostly hands-off. I mean, it's, it's just a town, probably a very upscale town, but... Uh, I think they, they pretty much made it so that people that really loved Disney World could live close to it and, you know, go there more and spend more of their money. But that's kind of why Celebration Florida exists. Uh, but 
In 2001, a man calling himself John Titer started posting from this small town in Florida. John claimed to be a time traveler from the year 2036, sent back with a very important mission to save his own world line. Greetings, I am a time traveler from the year 2036. I am on my way home after getting an IBM 5100 computer system from the year 1975. My time machine is a stationary mass temporal displacement unit manufactured by General Electric. The unit is powered by two topspin dual positive singularities that produce a standard offset Tipler sinusoid. I will be happy to post pictures of the unit. That was the first post a man named John Titer posted on the Coast to Coast message board. Back then they were called Post to Post. Get it? Uh, he also posted in the Time Travel Institute boards under the name Time Travel underscore zero. Which are still up, by the way, for the most part. I did link to some of those in the show notes. By the way, like, if you want more of this, the show notes are bursting forth with sources. Uh, probably more sources than I've ever used on an episode. So there's a lot more to dig into on your own if you would like. John claimed to be a time traveler on a mission from the military as part of the 177th military unit. He was sent back to the year 1975 in order to make contact with his grandfather, a man many believe to have been an IBM employee named P. Donald Estridge. His grandfather was one of 12 people who were working on the IBM 5100 computer, a highly secret project as it was to be IBM's first personal computer. He needed this machine because it had the ability to read both basic and APL coding language. They needed this in order to fix the Unix timeout bug, which will happen in 2038. And the Unix timeout bug is very akin to Y2K, but it's much more nerdy and will actually probably happen if we can't solve it. Whereas Y2K was, oh no, uh, Windows only reads the last two digits of the year, so when it hits 00, every every Windows machine on the face of the planet is going to think it's the year 1900 and blow up or something. Whereas the Unix bug is like, it's based on its system, so it's a 16-bit operating system, and there's a bunch of, you know, nerdy math that you have to do, but basically when it gets to 2038, it's, it's clock, it's just going to run out of, like, memory to calculate it. Because of its because of its you know limitations and it's going to stop, which is a big deal because a lot of stuff behind the scenes that runs servers and stuff stuff that you don't normally see, but really runs the entire world, is based off of Unix. So it's a bug that we will have to address in well 2038. It has also come to light in the past years that the 5100 had no internal clock. And so because of this, it may not be affected by the timeout. And that was just a nice little tidbit that I found that, you know, another reason that's come up, which I didn't, once again, one of the things I didn't know before I started researching this episode. John had succeeded in meeting with his grandfather, convincing him of his tale and getting said 5100 computer. 
However, on his way back, he stopped in the year 1998, where he sent two faxes to Art Bell, host then of Coast to Coast. This isn't the first time we've talked about Art Bell. Before showing up in late 2000 and early 2001, where he began posting on the boards. This stop in the early 2000s was not part of his mission. He claimed to have stopped in the time period to warn his family about what was to come, a promise he had made to his grandfather. He lived with them during this period, including his infant self. He said he was born in 1998. During this time, he would post to the message boards and answer questions. So like I said, he first sent two faxes. I'm going to read the faxes uh, because they kind of come important later for another part of the story and they give you a very good rundown of John Titor's uh, thought process and what was going on. So this is fax number one. Dear Art, I had to fax when I heard other time travelers calling in from any time past the year 2500 AD. Please let me explain. Time travel was invented in 2034. Offshoots of certain successful fusion reactor research allowed scientists at CERN to produce the world's first contained singularity engine. The basic design involves rotating singularities inside a magnetic field. By altering the speed and direction of rotation, you can travel both forward and backward in time. Time itself can be understood in the terms of connected lines. When you go back in time, you travel on your original timeline. He called timelines world lines. When you turn the singularity engine off, a new timeline is created due to the fact that you and your time machine are now there. In other words, a new universe is created. To get back to your original line, you must travel a split second further back and immediately throw the engine into Ford without turning it off. Some interesting outcomes of this are, you meet yourself. I have done it often, even taken a younger version of myself along for a few rides before returning myself to the new timeline and going back to mine. You can alter history in the new universe that you have just created. Most of the time, the changes are subtle. The oldest one was a skyscraper that didn't exist in New York. Interestingly, when you travel in time, you must compensate for the orbit of the Earth. Since the time machine doesn't move, you have to adjust the engine so you remain on the planet when you turn it off. Does that sound familiar? We'll talk about it. Now for the future you might want to know about. Y2K is a disaster. Many people die on the highways when they freeze to death, trying to get to warmer weather. The government tries to keep power by instituting martial law but all of it collapses when their efforts to bring power back up fail. A few years later, a communal government system is developed after the construction, after the constitution, sorry, takes a few twists. China retakes Taiwan, Israel wins the largest battle for their life, and Russia is covered in nuclear snow from their collapsed reactors. And then a while later in 1998, Bell got another fax. He had responded to the original fax, so this is kind of a response back. Dear Mr. Bell, I'm glad you're back. I faxed this information to you the day before you left the air. I wanted to make sure it wasn't lost in the shuffle. So I am sending a gift. If you have already seen this, please accept my apologies. If you choose to make this public, 
please do not publish the fax number. I had to fax when I heard that the other time traveler calling in from recent time passed intact the year 2500 AD. Let me explain. Mr. Bell, I sent a fax with this opening on July 29th, 1998. As I said, I am a time traveler. I have been on this world line since April of this year and I plan to leave soon. Typically, time travelers do not purposely affect the world lines they visit. However, this mission is unusually long and I've grown attached to some of the people that I've met here. Anyway, for my own reasons, I have decided to help this world line by sharing information about the future with a few people in the hope that it will help their future. I am contacting you for the same reason. Unfortunately, there is no historical reference to your program in my world line. I believe you can change your future by creating one now. Some of the information presented on your program may be invaluable to upline researchers. I suggest you isolate the programs that concentrate on military technology and new physics theories. Transcribe these programs and put them someplace safe, away from the box. I'm not really sure what the box is, by the way. I recommend someplace in the Midwest. I also urge you to reconsider your paranoia to the Russians. They are not preparing for war with the average U.S. citizen. They are preparing for war with the U.S. government. They will eventually save this country in the lives of millions of Americans. I realize my claims are a bit difficult to accept, so I will send the following once I know you have received this fax. A few pages from the operation manual of my time machine, and a few colored photographs of my vehicle. If you wish to contact me, I will be happy to share with you the nature of time, the physics of time travel, and some of the events of your future. Please send a return package to, and then he gives enough. I know that was a lot of reading that was long, but I think it gives a lot of insight into uh, what, you know, the entire story really and where it goes from there. But getting back to uh, him being in 2001 and living with his parents to, you know, warn them of what's to come. But what was to come? Tyner said in his post that starting in 2004, America would start fighting back against a government that had been slowly eroding away their rights for the last 10 to 20 years. Small, Waco-like events start happening every month or so until civil war breaks out. The war is between the people living in the cities, in fact, kind of by the government, and those living out in the country. The war would last for 10 or so years before it is quickly ended by a Russian nuclear attack on the U.S. government. This is called N-Day. All of this is going on while mad cow disease runs rampant. Um, so, you know, if you kind of think about this, I know that all this was already supposed to happen, but, you know, when we really get down here and we start talking about time travel, we're going to talk about a divergence, which is like the percentage of how far apart one world line is from another. And Titer would say that our world line is 2.5% off from his. So is it possible that maybe the stuff that happened in Titer's world line happened sooner than ours did? I mean, we we aren't battling mad cow disease. I mean, we are, but not like it's not a problem. But we are battling COVID-19. You know, there's been a lot of demonstrations. There's been a lot of protesting over people's rights and there's been a lot of uh, upheaval if I will 
in the political area as of late. And, you know, you can draw these lines very easily to what Titer is saying. But then, like, I also kind of go back and think, like, if you think hard enough, you could probably always draw those lines. You know, like, there's always, you know, some sort of disease out there that we're dealing with. If it's not Mad Cow or COVID, it's swine flu, it's Ebola. You know, you could talk about, you know, I mean, you could always probably find uh, enough enough of those connections. Like, the more I looked into this and the more I started reading about what really probably is behind the John Titer story and stuff, I kind of started thinking, like, you know what, his predictions are 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 just uh how do i want to say it they're vague enough but yet also specific enough to work in a myriad of situations they are very nostradamus like they are very much like you know they're you can you can kind of read them in a way that you want and have them make sense which is kind of what i just did but he did say some interesting things we'll get into that later Soon thereafter, after the uh, the uh, nuclear attack, the U.S. is reformed into five sections with its own intermittent government, and our system of government is also reformed. So he kind of talks about, like, there's still states, but the states are in five sections, and now there's just, like, another government in between everything. So instead of having local, state, federal, now they have local, state, uh, section, or whatever you want to call it, government, and then federal government. Life is much more simple, but the internet still exists. In fact, it's about the best and only way to, to communicate. Titer said that as a kid, he lived in rural Florida, running oranges with his father up and down the coast. When he turned 13, he joined the Fighting Diamondbacks, a shotgun infantry unit. He would later go to college at what we would call the University of Florida. In his, in his uh, world line, I think it was called, it was still University of Florida, but it was also part of a, a fort, a military fort. Uh, Titer said he would answer questions that people had, uh, but he put forth a few stipulations on those questions. He would not disclose any information that would allow someone to personally gain by it, like no lottery numbers, no stock, nothing like that. He would not disclose information that would allow someone to avoid, quote, death by probability, unquote. Nor would he give any info on earthquakes, tsunamis, tsunamis, plane crashes, or bombing. He doesn't say bombings, he says bombing, like one in particular. And once again, people have drawn the line that this might include 9-11. And for some reason, you know, he, had, he did go on to say, like, there's some stuff I can't tell you because you guys just need to experience it. Was that was that a hint? He would not give out the names or events associated with individuals, their families, or their well-being. One of the more interesting questions asked to John was about a curious new invention that had been announced as Project Ginger in 2000. He was asked simply, what is Ginger? To which he responded, it looks like some sort of motorized scooter. Project Ginger, of course, would be unveiled by its inventor, uh, Dean Kamen, on the Today Show in 2001 as the Segway. And this is a big sticking point between the bunkers of John Titer and believers of John Titer. Uh, in the book that I read, 
for this uh, Convictions of a Time Traveler, which I'll talk about a little bit later, get more into it. He goes on, the author, who's anonymous, so I don't know if it's he or not. The author goes on about uh, just like how improbable it would be for this, for him to know this information. So in order to explain this, I have to paint a picture of the year 2000. The internet was around. Broadband was around, but it wasn't widely uh, out there. I think I don't think I got it until 2001, 2002. So a lot of people, including Tider, were still using a 56K dial-up connection, which is not broadband and is was very slow. I'm talking, you know, five minutes to download a low-res picture slow. I'm talking two days to download the demo of the video game Croc, because I did that long time and it failed many many times so you know he also so saying that he responded to this this question in like two and a half hours so taking into account that the slow internet and the time frame then add in that uh the inventor of the segway had like over a hundred patents and none of them explicitly said ginger on them. Patents usually don't. I have patents in my name. Um, if you ever tried to look up a patent, like I, you know, I've, I've looked up mine so I could put them on resumes and stuff. I don't have patents. I'm just named on them with like six other people. I guess I do, but not, not sole patents. Um, it's not like it says anything. Like mine just says like display portion of a UI, you know, like it doesn't tell you what it's for. It just kind of tells you what it is. Um, he also points out that two of the patent numbers that a lot of debunkers point to are wrong. One is one of Cayman's patents, but doesn't seem to have anything to do with Ginger, and the other one doesn't even belong to Dean Cayman. So take all that into effect. That you had you had two and a half hours. So he's positing that Titer started research. If he started researching this answer as soon as he got it, that gave him two and a half hours to get on 56k internet to know where to go for that information to know that it was Dean Kamen who is the inventor of Ginger he didn't know like he wasn't asked that he just knew he was just asked what is project Ginger um you know he would have to have known the guy's name first off to even find the patent you know to know who to find so you take all that into account, the, the hundreds of patents to sift through, just knowing the guy's name, the, the slowness of the internet, and the time frame that he had. Would he have been able, would whoever John Titer was, have been able to look up that information? I don't think they could have, but I'm going to talk about something else later that might be another theory as how that information was gotten. A big tangent there, but one that I think is necessary. Another interesting tidbit... A tighter let slip was concerning language. A poster asked if speech had changed in any way. And Titer's response was that since everyone is so connected to the internet, we all type very fast. So what have we done? What have we as a society done? Emojis, LOL, you know, BRB, you know, I mean, Twitter trying to, you know, trying to stay within that precious 260 character limit has made us type very fast and talk and communicate online in a very shorthand way. 
He also clued us into how entertainment and news have been broken up in his world life. It was all watched on the internet, <coughs> YouTube, <coughs> uh, by people producing their own content. Once again, YouTube. In Tyner's world line, books were read online, Kindle, ebooks, all of that, and the internet was even used for video calling. So Skype, FaceTime, you know, all that stuff has come true. Which, I don't know, I think you probably could have predicted that if you were a, a techie enough person. There may even be evidence to suggest that he hinted at 9-11. In one of the two faxes to Coast to Coast in 1998, he mentioned the New York skyline missing that one skyscraper. He mentions it in almost a way that suggests he is far removed from it, almost in passing, as if it happened way before he was born. Is it possible that in Titer's world line, the collapse of the World Trade Center happened before 1998? The more you dig, the more things you find that seem to match up. And as I said, up, I said earlier, you know, you can make stuff match up if you just try a little bit. So, if it is true, how did all this time travel stuff work? It all started with CERN, or so Titer said. He stated in 2001 that CERN would discover microsingularities. However, there is a problem with this. CERN, sta CERN started construction on the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, in 2001. But it was not completed and up and running until 2008. Is this because, once again, his, in his world line, uh, time was a little bit off from our own and it had happened earlier? Or is it possible that John was purposely misleading us? Maybe there's just some things that he's not allowed to divulge. And so a little white lie to kind of throw us off the track is the best that he can do. But there is another hydrogen collider known as the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider, which is in Upton, New York. This one was in operation in the early 2000s. There's another good reason that the Relativistic may be the actual location of the groundbreaking discovery that would lead to time travel. The Gravity Displacement Unit, aka Time Machine, was made by General Electric, who, according to some sources at NASA, had contacts with RHIC, which is Relativistic. It would make much more sense for GE to have contracted the tech from them than CERN. The machine basically worked by taking two of these microscopic holes, black holes, and putting them in opposition of each other. This created a gravity distortion field, a small one, but one large enough to enclose, say, a whole vehicle. The machine then bends gravity and time around it at about 10 years an hour. It must also be noted that it can only safely travel about 60 years in any direction. So, um, he had like a Corvette, like he used a 1967 Corvette, he said, to go back in 1975. The Corvette is not the machine, it's this little, you know, this little like cooler looking thing with a bunch of dials on it. He put in the machine, you know, in the car. He just needed the car to drive around in 1975. But the car is kind of the vessel. It doesn't move. You are just uh, thrown back in time with the car so that you can, you know, have some sort of transportation. When the machine reaches its destination, it creates a new timeline. A new world line, as Titer would say. 
He also stated that you couldn't quite get back to your own timeline, not like 100%. But with careful planning and careful math, you could get back to a world line with a tiny divergence of 0.000237%. Like I said, an R world line is about 2.5% from tighter. So you can get back to a percentage so small it's almost undeniable. It's like you would go back and Bob's eyes are now blue, but when you left, Bob's eyes are green. And that's the only thing that's changed in the entire, in the entire uh, world line. There's a lot of speculation and discussion on how the device may work, but there's an aspect of it that captured my imagination, and this was already kind of touched on in the facts, in the facts. The veritable gravity lock, the VGL. When a prototype of the C204, which is what the device is called, there was a C204 and a larger C206 unit made by General Electric, was developed, they found out pretty quickly that the device would travel in time, but when it got there, it didn't follow the gravitational pull and rotation of the Earth, so it would end up in different places, sometimes just falling out of mid-air. The VGL constantly monitored the gravity and location to keep the device where it needed to be, and also kind of to keep it away from you know, if you go back in time to 1975, there might be a brick wall in your way. So, you know, and like I said, we've heard this before. Go back to, what is that, season two? When I did Madman Markham? And we also talked about how he would throw the screw through his little tiny device and it would pop up like three feet to the left or whatever. You know, the, the gerbils. We talked about the gerbils and how they were throwing them through this big time machine and they would appear outside because the Earth had had rotated, and then they appeared where the the warehouse was, but isn't anymore. So, two things that kind of kind of go together there. John Titer stopped posting in March of 2001, and was gone. But maybe not for good. And once again, we will get into that near the end here. Even though Titer left us with many predictions that came true in some fashion or another, and there seems to be actual science behind the the uh, C204 unit and the time travel theories themselves, which I'm sure if you really sit down and look into them, they probably fall apart really quickly. However, there's uh, plenty of evidence to point to this all being a hoax. Maybe hoax is too harsh a word. Let's go with a story. A story birthed on the internet that grew into a life of its own. There are several people that we can look at who may have been uh, in on the John Titer story. Larry Harbour is a lawyer who operates out of Orlando. He came out in 2004 claiming to be representing Kay Titer, John Titer's mother. He's also the CEO of the John Titer Foundation LLC, which holds the copyright on the 177th insignia uh, that John Titer wore on his uniform. Uh, that he runs the John Titer Foundation website, or at least pays to host it. And uh, the Foundation also published a book entitled John Titer, A Time Traveler's Tale. A book which was taken out of print shortly after its publication. You can buy a used copy of this book off Amazon and the like for around $900. It wasn't for sale for very long, and I think the reason many people want it is because it has like nine pages and color pictures of time machine diagrams of the time machine, the pattern of the time machine. Like, and I don't know if I know you can find a few.
few of those images on the internet, but I don't know if you can find all nine pages. Larry has maintained he has nothing to do with the John Tyler story. That it's just something that fell into his lap, quote unquote. He never seems too excited about the subject when talking about it in interviews. You know, like he does kind of act like, I just represent this, I don't know what it is. Like he doesn't seem to be very like giddy that he's getting all this attention from this. In fact, I'm not sure if he really digs the attention. Maybe it's not so much Larry though. People related to Larry. Both his son Brandon and his brother Richard have also been pinned as being tighter themselves. Brandon, who would have only been maybe 14 at the time, now works in aerospace himself, but he seems an unlikely candidate. I just don't know, like a lot of people agree that you know, a kid of 13, 14 would have been able to perpetrate this hoax all the way through. Might have come up with a story, but I don't know if they could have pulled everything off that it turned into. But Richard is a little more interesting. A PI was hired by an Italian TV show called Voyager. He was hired to look into the John Titer story. He found a PO box in Celebration, Florida. The box was at one time registered to a John Rick Herbert. Okay, it's, it's Herber. If I'm saying Harbor, I apologize. Later, the P.O. Box changed hands to Larry, where he used it for the JTF, the John Titer Foundation. The P.I. concluded that it may have been Richard, who knew who he knew as Rick, who was behind the Titer story. However, Larry does not have a brother named John. His first name is Richard, and he's never gone by Rick. Then there's the YouTube video. John Titer, letter 177, Tempest Edex Rerum, which is still on YouTube, and I have linked that in the show notes. So Larry was given this letter, he says, by K. Titer, who, in a, and K. says that it was written by John as sort of a, he's come back and here's a farewell letter. So I'm going to read the letter because it's pretty juicy, but you can also go online, and you can watch the video. It's just text on the screen with, you know, a robotic voice. Uh, reading the letter, but here we go. Greetings. I am the man you know as John Titer. Correction. I am one of the men known as John Titer. In 1999, I was the second to arrive on the same world line as the other man you know as John. It was I who wrote the post in November and January. When I return to 2001, I will write for the final time in March. My mother will release this message in November of 2009. The other John wrote the messages in December and February. He too will write his final post in March of 2001. As I write this now, the date is March 22nd, 2009, and the divergence is 1.941%. This is not the first time I have been in your future. I was here before writing the first post in 2001. I tried to warn you. I tried to wake you as time passes. I fear you will witness the transition for your apathy and dependence to your children's fall and bondage. I feel sorry for you. You will not know the peace and freedom I will have when I return home. In spite of my efforts, the war that gave this gift to me may come to you much later. To prove to you who I am, a friend will corroborate the significance of the group, the B-52s. I'm sorry about the strife and difficulty you have had these past years, but it was required. As I said, after 1975, 
When I arrived in 1999, there was already another John there. The two of us devised a plan to return to our separate world lines. The plan required that each of us travel to different time periods between 1998 and 2009 and take measurements with our displacement machines. We had to find a way to communicate these measurements in a way that would last and could be found easily later. Our first attempt was the fax to Art Bell. I traveled first to 1998 and left the first fax with Art. The other John traveled to the latter and was able to find my fax. He then left the second fax. As the plan is now progressing, we are able to use the internet. The posts we made and will make are a foundation we will need to get home. In each month, we will post the measurements we made in various time periods on different world lines. Every time someone posts after John Titer after 2001, they will become more permanent and easier for me or the other John to find. If the other John or even another John ever arrives in your future trying to get home, he will see the numbers he needs to in the post. If he were to hear this message, he will know what to do. With your help, they will last. They are a signpost to other Johns who are uh, lost and need our work to return home. For this, I must thank all of you. 177 Tempest Ebex Rerun. Time will devour all things. So, if you ever, I have also linked this in the show notes. If you go to the, the John Titer Foundation website, it's just a gray page with the insignia, a bunch of post dates, and coordinates. And so, basically, you know, if another time traveler or another John pop up, they can go to that website, they can see the coordinates, and they can use those to get back to the wor- their own world line. So, that's kind of all of Larry Harbor stuff. A lot there, a lot to dig into, but he's not the only one. Then we have a person calling themselves Temporal Recon. This person, who has remained anonymous throughout the years, wrote the book Conviction of a Time Traveler, a rather convincing book defending John's story from the would-be debunkers, and I've already kind of talked about that. Could it be that this book was written by Titer himself under the avatar of Temporal Recon? Temporal Recon, not Tempora, like like the sushi or whatever, but Temporal Recon. I keep doing that. Uh, I don't know. I think it might have been written by somebody else that we might talk about here in just a minute. Finally, we have a man named Joseph Metheny. Metheny has worked at such companies as Adobe and Netscape. The other thing about Metheny is he is the mind behind what people would describe as the first ARG, alternate reality game tail known as Ong's Hat, which of course is the next segment, so just a little primer there for what we're going to get into after after this segment ends. Metheny appeared on the uh, Project Archivist episode 138 in 2015, which I've also linked to in the show notes so you can listen to it, and he took credit for the John Teeter story. He claimed to have been one of four people who tailored the whole story. It was them who posted the messages and even acted as some of the other posters asking the questions. Uh, Multiple people acted as John, that's why sometimes John doesn't sound himself. They had the time machine and all of that made up by a prop maker. Uh, Joseph even said it was him who had called in the Coast to Coast one time to play the part of John Titer. It was also Metheny who uh, purportedly got the book John Titer, A Time Traveler's Tale, pulled off of shelves. 
Matheny said he didn't want the story used for uh, any type of financial gain or anything. So, you know, he kind of posits that uh, Harbor took this idea that he figured, you know, no one was going to take credit for and tried to make money off of it himself. And he found out about it. And that's kind of why he had to come out of the woodwork and take credit for all of it. Uh, one of the reasons. And he that's why it's off, off you know, you can't get any more because even though Herbert was like, I've never heard of this, he did take the book down like two days after Metheny got a hold of him. So is it all true? Or is this just subterfuge by Metheny to uh, deflect himself from the story? Because you see, Ong's hat didn't go well for him in the end. It attracted too many hardcore conspiracy theorists which uh, Metheny wanted to uh, kind of distance himself from. So after reading all this stuff and listening to Project Archivist stuff and all of that, I'm inclined to believe many people that Metheny, he may not be 100% by it, but he, I think he's probably either involved or he knows who really is behind it. He's got a lot of inside information. Like, he was in the tech world, you know? He hung out with people from Silicon Valley he worked, you know, he lives in Santa Cruz. He worked in the tech industry professionally since 1998. Adobe, Netscape, you know, all these started companies, sold companies, all that jazz. If you think about it, he could have, he might have been the guy that could have easily have known what Project Ginger was just through the grapevine, through the inside talk. But, you know, like, uh, it was developed over in England. But still, like, it's the tech world. I'm sure word got around on what uh, Cayman was working on. So I feel like it might have, you know, John, someone might have asked that, and Metheny might have been like, I know what that is. Throw that in there. You know? Also, like, he was a guy that was really in the tech and thinking about stuff, as we'll see with Ong's hat. Like, I feel like he would have been a guy that could very easily have sat down and looked at the patterns of what was happening with the internet, with computers, and and have figured out like there's a very good chance stuff's gonna start going this way so you know um if it's not john metheny then god damn it john titer is real and i say we should eat his warnings so yeah there's a lot to chew on about this and whether you believe the story or not and if nothing else it's a hell of a rabbit hole to fall down just remember to check the date if you're driving through Celebration, Florida. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ong's Hat was a place sat deep in the pine barrens of New Jersey. The 17th century town was more of an outpost with just a few buildings. It was known as a rough and rowdy place. The town got its name from a man named Jacob Ong, who, after a fight with a woman, threw his beloved hat up into the air, and it became stuck in a tree, and he was not able to uh, retrieve it. But Ong's hat may have served a different purpose in more modern times. It may have been a place where fringe scientists and cultists gathered to travel into other dimensions. The story starts in the early 80s, when a much younger Joseph Metheny was handed some papers by a friend of his in his apartment in Santa Cruz, California. One of the papers was something called the Incanabala Press Catalog, as well as other pamphlets referring to a place called Ong's Hat. Flipping through the catalog, Metheny noticed that it wasn't a catalog. It was a story disguised as a catalog of chaos science, fringe pamphlets, rare books, and many Xeroxed works. It was telling a secret story of a conspiracy theory to rival the masses, a story of traveling into alternate dimensions. And I have, you know, I've linked in the show notes where you can go and get like a PDF of the Incanabala, and uh, it's also in his book, which we'll talk about. It is very creatively written. There's something very like uh, House of Leavesy about it, or kind of like the way the creepypasta for uh, Candle Cove, how it was written, uh, not you know, it was written as a message board post, you know, a, a different way of telling the story which I actually kind of enjoyed. This story told in the catalog told a tale of a chaos cabal, of chaos scientists, magicians, and other friend scientists, all backed financially by a cult called the uh, Moorish Orthodox Church. The group was headed by a man in the MOC named Wally Fard, who owned uh, 200 acres of uh, pine of the Pine Barrens, and this included the area that was Hong's Hat, along with a scientist named Dr. Kemedev Sawardi. I think I'm a little hazy on the part that Sawardi plays, but I think that he was part of this. They started experimenting with uh, alternate dimensional travel in the mid-1970s, but in upstate New York, 
in Sawardi's labs, but soon fled to Ong's hat after showing up on the, fret, on the Fed's radar. The group would come to call themselves the Institute for Chaos Studies, the ICS for short. Soon the group grew more and more, and uh, temporary dwellings popped up deep in the Pine Barrens around Ong's hat. They called this place the Moorish Science Ashram. In the late 70s, uh, 78 or 79, the group developed and built the first alternate dimensional vehicle, known simply as the Egg. Using the Egg, travelers could visit other alternate dimensional timelines. The first run of the Egg was called uh, the Cat Program, and its first pilot of the Egg was named Kit. That was their nickname, so kind of Kit Cat. Get it? I think it was called Cat because it had something to do, like it was a play on the Schrodinger's Cat uh, thought experiment. So on the spring equinox, the egg was fired up for the first time and uh, it vanished for seven minutes before returning with the egg and a kit unharmed. However, this was not without its troubles. They had theorized that meeting your alternate self in a different dimension could result in hazardous outcomes. So because of this, they made it a rule to only travel to uninhabited versions of Earth. It turns out that the ICS were not the only ones doing this. There was also a group on the West Coast who dabbled in it. Uh, and they had also invented their own egg-like device. Then there was also a group in Java, Indonesia, headed by a man named Pak Harjanto. They had also cracked alternate dimensional travel and had traveled to an uninhabited version of Java that they called Java 2. Here, they found the ruins of a city that they dubbed Perkwala, and they had found civilization, and they had found the city abandoned. So they went to an uninhabited world, but they found that there had been inhabitants there. After this, their goal had become to track down the inhabitants of this lost city. Uh, and they did find these beings. They had evolved from lemurs, not chimps and had learned to travel, quote-unquote, alternate through dimensions, a long time ago. But back in the States, progress at the ashram had grown tremendously. In the early 80s, a brother and sister team by the name Frank and Althea Dobbs joined the ashram after being kicked out of Princeton for their cognitive chaos equations. The Dobb twins were raised in a UFO cult in Texas, which may have contributed to their out-there knowledge and thinking. It would be the Dobbs twins, combined with a slew of others helping with their work, that would lead to the invention of the fourth edition egg, or the gate. A device that would let you simply walk through to another dimension. No more egg, no more yoking, I'm going to talk about yoking in a second. And no more danger. Just simply walk into a different world. Uh, maybe danger wasn't the right term. They still had to train everybody to walk through the gate. Like people that used the egg, only certain people could use the egg because there were other people that just couldn't handle the radiation and get sick and stuff. But some people could, some people couldn't. But they found that the gate, uh, everyone could use as long as they had the proper training. And yoking, so there's a lot of, when you sit down and read about 
about this. There's a lot of um, kind of science and magic combined in this story. Um, and some of that involves, you know, like, so there's chaos math, chaos magic, chaos sciences, uh, and, you know, a little bit of tantric sex and, you know, uh, just a dusting of stuff like that. So, Yokin, apparently, when you traveled in the egg, you couldn't take anything with you because you would just pop up on the other end naked. Like, you could nothing inert could make it through, and apparently only one living specimen could make it through with the egg. But, if one were to have sex in the egg, then two people would be as one. And so, Yokin was the term where have sex in the egg, and then both of you can go through. So chew on that in a little bit, if you will. Then, at some point, most likely in the mid to late 80s, an accident at Fort Dix, which is uh, very close to Ong's hat, apparently, uh, changed everything. The accident involved nuclear waste, and it made the members of the group flee into the gate, taking all of their possessions with them. And uh, they now live in a world no other humans in an alternate Pine Barrens where they continue their experiments. And that's the story of Ong's Hat, as laid out in the Incanibala and Amethany's book, Ong's Hat, The Beginning. But is it true? Well, like you probably have guessed now, the short answer is no. And the correct answer is no. The bones of the Ong's Hat story first appeared in a magazine in 1988 called Edge Detector, which I want a copy of so bad. Edge Detector. It was an article written by Peter Lamborn Wilson. Joseph Matheny was friends with a man named Nick Herbert, who also knew this Peter Wilson. The two, along with some other friends, so Herbert and Matheny, along with some other friends, started leaving copies of the article everywhere they could. They then wrote the Incanabala press catalog, and the cover was illustrated by an artist named James uh, Cohenline. After that, Matheny took it to uh, the BBS boards and all over the very early internet. So, you know, this is, we don't really have the internet, we're just getting there, but there were, you know, interconnected colleges and stuff like that using message boards and stuff to communicate. These boards allowed him to get to an even wider audience. And it was there that Matheny really made the story his own. He started posting interviews with the fictional characters from the story, such as Emery Cranston, who uh, quote-unquote published the catalog. And it's the interview with Emery Cranston where we find out what happened to the people in Ong's Hat. That they went through uh, their gate and they are now living in another dimension. Uh, so I guess... Like, I think in the interview that he says, like, yeah, sometimes they come back and they visit. So that's how we get this kind of inside information from what, what happened after they left. Matheny even started playing uh, a part, a uh, alternate version of himself, where he was an investigative reporter working on the story. But, of course, he used his real name, which would backfire on him. Um, you'll find out why. But as time went on, more and more people couldn't see the fictional story and thought it was real. Conspiracy theories started popping up all over the internet. So now we're we're getting up there. We're in the late 90s and the internet has become a force to be reckoned with. And Matheny could no longer control his own story. In 1999, he compiled all the information into a book, Ong's Hat, The Beginning, 
in an attempt to wrangle in the story, but it was no use. The story had outgrew him and become a beast of conspiracy theory that he now had to battle. Since he used his real name, people were able to track him down, hounding him for any new information his investigation, quote unquote, might have uncovered. He had people camping out on his lawn. He even had to pull a gun on an intruder who tried to break into his home. In 2001, Nathaney ended the experiment he called Ong's hat. Nick and I decided today to publicly announce in the near future that the Ong's hat project has now concluded, he wrote in a post. I think we were successful in laying the groundwork for the coming change. The gateways are open now. P.S. This is not a joke. Still, to this day, not everyone buys that it was all just an experiment on what could be perceived as real or perceived as fiction. And, uh, we'll tell you that it's not a game and it's not a joke. But it is. Like I said, it is kind of pointed to, it's not really what we would think of an alternate reality game today where people have made this story on the internet and they let people discover it and find out what's really going on. Uh, but it is a precursor to it, and you can you can see how many people borrowed the elements of the Ong's Hat story to make the modern ARG that we know so well today. But it is just that. It is just a story, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. But you may never find yourself in Ong's Hat because it's barely there. Just a series of crumbled ruins. Maybe, just maybe, you won't find it because it's somewhere else. So that is it. That is the story of Ong's Hat. That is the huge John Titer story. And uh, you can see the similarities. You can kind of see uh, John Metheny's kind of DNA, I think, in both of them a lot. There were even a couple of a blog posts from John Titer that did reference Ong's Hat by name. So I think it's pretty safe to say we know where both of these stories came from. But... Uh, wow, we're really into, we're really in, we're over an hour already, and we haven't even gotten to, uh, news yet, but we're here now, so intermission, I will play a song, don't know, not, nothing new, nothing new this week, I'm hoping next week to have a new track, and then we will come back with, uh, your local headlines.
Okay, we are back and we are ready for some local headlines. Got a myriad of stories, all different things this week. Uh, no weird connecting tissue like the last couple of episodes. So our first one up is uh, from uh, kfoxtv.com. Mother believes the spirit of her late daughter was seen at a La Crucius cemetery. And this is from La Crucius, New Mexico. Favola Rodriguez was two years old when she died in September of 2018 while being watched by her mother's boyfriend. Her mother, Sandra Gonzalez, has had problems with people stealing things from her daughter's grave at the Masonic Cemetery in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Toys and personal belongings have gone missing, so Sandra asked the cemetery to be on lookout. Another family member has a camera on a nearby headstone in the Masonic Cemetery, and according to Sandra, their son's killer was still free and was allegedly vandalizing that gravesite. The family viewed their footage, looking for evidence that they could take to the police, and what they saw concerned them. The family took images of a little girl in the cemetery in the middle of the night to cemetery owners, concerned a little girl was lost in the cemetery. Right away, a worker said, we know that little girl, and walked the family to her grave. The next day, the family returned to the cemetery, and Sandra and her grandmother happened to be at Feliva's grave. Sandra said that she burst into tears when they showed her the photo because she said, I know that is my daughter. She told us that she had something really beautiful to show us and that they had captured her on video camera, Sandra said. So then she pulled out her phone and she showed it to me. And as soon as she showed me the picture, I started crying. The final image captured by the camera in Masonic Cemetery appears to show the little girl walking away with a tall man. That kind of does. Photos are all on here. You can see every one of them. I think she was there to take him to heaven, Sandora said. They both have such a tragic story of things that have happened to them. I mean, both of them still haven't gotten justice. So I think she was definitely there to confront him and take him to heaven. So it's a little heartbreaking story, but some very uh, weird pictures. I mean, the one picture of the girl in the cemetery is very clear. Uh, the second one, not so much, but there are two things there. And uh, so I, yeah, go take a look at this article. Go take a look at those pictures because they are, they are very interesting. And the second one is a, uh, Kind of local. Athens County Sheriff, so this is from NBC4TI.com, uh, written by the NBC4 staff. Athens County Sheriff's Office investigates call involving preacher, quote unquote. The Athens County Sheriff's Office responded to a call for suspicious activity at a state park on Tuesday. This was posted August 19th. With the Ohio Department of Natural Resource Officers unavailable, sheriff's deputies responded to the call. According to a release from the office, the person who made the call to police said they saw a person across a lake shine a red light in their direction. A short time later, the caller told police they saw a bipedal creature three or four feet tall walking near them looking in their direction. Uh, the call said they were uncertain what they saw but did not believe it to be a person. The sheriff's office patrolled the area but didn't seem to observe any suspicious or activity or creatures at the time. A short and sweet one, but an interesting one. 
Uh, I need to find out what state park this was. I'll have to look in the Athens County, see where it was. Maybe I can go uh, do some legend tripping and uh, find this creature for myself. And the last one, I was going to try to go to their actual website, but they uh, paywall it almost immediately. So I'm going to use the Coast to Coast article about it from Tim Banal. And uh, this was reported a while ago on August 2nd, I believe, or August 4th. Uh, odd cattle mutilation reported in Oregon. Authorities in Oregon are investigating a rather curious mutilation case in which uh, the perpetrator may have left behind a crucial clue, a critical clue. The puzzling incident reportedly occurred at a ranch near the community of Fossil last month when a black English cow was discovered with its tongue and genitals removed with a seemingly surgical precision and its reproductive organs had been taken. Strangely, the dead animal was discovered with its front legs tucked underneath its body. She died in a position she couldn't have possibly got into by herself. Observed ranch, over, ranch owner David Hunt. I don't, I don't have any kind of logical explanation for it. Sheriff Deputy Jeremiah Holmes, who was investigating the case, declared that uh, there was definitely foul play involved in this animal's death. Although there is initially, although there initially appeared to not be significant signs of trespassing on the ranch where the killing occurred, Holmes indicated uh, that authorities later found a partial boot print that appears to have been from a person who committed the nefarious deed. It remains to be seen whether or not the impression will yield any breakthroughs in the case. But undoubtedly, a better clue than most other cattle mutilation incidents. Are afforded. To that end, the late July case follows an eerie similar incident from this past March as a well, highly publicized event which occurred in the summer of last year wherein five bulls were mutilated under mysterious circumstances, which have yet to be explained. In light of the series of unexplained and peculiar cattle deaths throughout the state over the last year, authorities are now considering forming a special task force to look into the matter and hopefully find the culprit behind the troubling slayings. And uh, like I said, I linked to in the show notes, I linked to the actual news article. And uh, I think if you go to there the first time, you can read it and look at the pictures. But if you try to go there again, it will paywall you. So that's why I just read the banal article. But it is a very weird picture. So the cow is very obviously dead. But it looks like, like you know, when your cat loafs, where it tucks its hands under its like stomach and then it tucks its back legs in and it becomes a cat loaf. That's what this that's what this cow looks like it's doing. It's a very disturbing picture because I've never seen a cat a cow almost a cat a cow in that position ever. And uh, we have no that's it that's it that's all three of them. So this week's local headlines uh, I think it was just a good array. I really enjoyed kind of all three of these stories. Uh, just you know running the gambit of paranormal stuff this week in the news. So we have one more segment to do, and that is uh, your small town secrets. All right. On uh, this uh, edition of your small town secrets, I got an email from uh, Raymond a.k.a. Cosmic Ray, who wrote a series of articles about uh, Georgia Damsky and 
and uh, you know Valley Center, California, Desert Center, where all of this stuff happened. So he sent me that article, and we're going to break it up over the next few episodes, um, and then I'm going to put it on the website. I'll probably put it in the show notes and maybe convert it like it's a Word document. I'll probably export it like as a PDF and then just link it onto the site so if anyone wants to grab the PDF and read through the whole thing and he's got some pictures and stuff in there. It's really nice, nicely written little little piece about uh, the contactee movement out there and some of the other stuff that happens. So, but what I've kind of used for the show is I've taken the experiences, all the little stories that he's gathered from around the area and uh, probably this episode and at least the next episode, we're going to go through uh, all the little all the little tales that he has collected about uh, the area around Desert Center and all of that. So this is uh, kind of the first first edition of uh, Cosmic Ray's uh, stories. As a contactee with our friendly neighborhood uh, Venusians, I follow in the footsteps with many of the pioneering lights in the UFO community. There is much that I have learned from such illuminated ones as Orfeo Angelucci, Albert Coe, Gabriel Green, Dana Howard, Gloria Lee, Howard Menger, Omak Onak, and many others. But probably the most well-known of all the contactees, and the mentor of them all, and myself, was none other than the, the amateur astronomer from Valley Center, California, George Adamski. So that's just a little intro. I wanted to read that so you could get a, a taste of what what he's uh, about. I would really like to hear, Raymond, about your actual contactee experiences with the Venusians. I think that would be also an interesting thing to, to share with everyone. So here's the first of, of the stories that we've got. Saucer lights over the Colorado desert. The Southern California towns of Blythe and Desert Center are located in the Colorado desert, as we've mentioned on a previous episode an area covering the, the uh, eastern side of Riverside County. Blythe is about four miles west of the Arizona-California state line, and uh, back in 1995, 1955, I'm sorry, what is now Interstate 10 was known as U.S. Route 60-70. And if one were to continue due west along the route for a distance of 48 miles, they would find themselves in the small community of Desert Center. Radamski and his contingent encountered the landed Venusian scout ship and his pilot, Orthon. In 1955, Blythe had a population of approximately 41,000, being the hub of the uh, agriculturally rich Palo Verde Valley. From the air, Blythe appears as a vast green and white checkerboard of alfalfa and cotton, hugging the Colorado River in the southeast corner of California. The town is encircled by 30 square miles of windswept dune and rugged mountain country, an extension of the Colorado Desert, the 17th largest desert area on Earth. The village of Blythe began 100 years ago in 1920, after a consortium of Arizona farmers spent $40 million in diverting the unpredictable waters of the Colorado River, therefore transforming the barren wasteland on the California side into a second valley of the Nile. Life's main street in 1955 consisted of a conglomeration of tourist courts, used car lots, and uh, mercantile establishments. However, there were quite the shady side streets that stretched out toward the lush green farms and open cattle ranges to the west. Investigative journalist Paul C. Bernard 
who wrote an article about the growing popularity of Blythe and Desert Center as UFO hotspots, who believes in flying saucers, in the July 1955 issue of Blue Book magazine, provided a rundown on unusual UFO sightings of these two desert communities that took place prior to Adamski's contact with the Venusian. The journalist began by visiting science classes at Blythe High School, where he conducted a survey among the students, soliciting their opinions about flying saucers. When he discovered what was since 1951 to 1955, 123 of the students had actually testified to seeing the flying saucers over Blythe. And among the student body at large, there were a near unanimous opinion that the flying saucers were real, physical objects that came from outer space. So here's a few of those. Truck buzzed by flying saucers. Frank Hines was a mechanic at the Desert Center garage when on the night of June 14, 1952, he claims that he was buzzed by a flying saucer as he was driving a tow truck along Highway 6070. Apparently, he was spotted by the occupants of the flying saucer who directed their ship at him, swooping down from the sky and hovering over his truck for the space of about two miles before the saucer just flew off. Civil Air Patrol spotters befuddled. In mid-July 1952, Tom Jewell, a Civil Air Patrol CAP spotter stationed at Blythe, reported four flying saucer sightings throughout a 10-day period. In every instance, there was a flying saucer that rose up in a straight line from behind a nearby mountain range. The object would turn in a sharp right angle and fly across the sky at an estimated speed of 900 miles per hour. Then it would just disappear over the Arizona skies off into the eastern horizon. Within the same 10-day period, another CAP spotter, Frank Draper, also out of Blythe, reported three similar flying saucer sightings. On the trail of the flying saucers. Our intrepid reporter, Paul C. Bernard, was hot on the trail of the flying saucers. For three weeks in the spring of 1955, he spoke with people from all walks of life in the flying saucer county, I'm sorry, flying saucer country of the Colorado desert, and particularly in its two prominent towns of Blythe and Desert Center. He wanted to know everything that the townies of Blythe and Desert Center could recollect and tell him about George Adamski. The, uh, the interest of the Air Force and their sightings of fireballs and flying saucers, and everything else the residents might have to say about the Nordic-looking Venusians wearing tan jumpsuits or arrayed in metallic gear and poking around in the desert. I talked to scrawny cowboys in skin-tight Levi's and wealthy ranchers and overgrown Stetsons, said Bernard, adding that I talked to Mexican and African-American farmhands, desert rats, and high school kids. As of his time in Blythe, the larger of the two towns, the journalist noted that I talked to the mayor, the chief of police, the newspaper editor, and the manager of the radio station. I talked to the high school principal, the superintendent of schools, and the Chamber of Commerce. But most importantly, Bernard emphasized that everyone talked right back. So that is the first kind of part of at least two parts, maybe three parts. He gave me gave me quite quite a lot to read through. And uh, I love like a good good old UFO tale from like the 50s and 60s. 
and they, he just they were chock full of them for the next couple of episodes. So thank you, thank you, Cosmic Ray. But uh, we'll continue this discussion on the next episode of Small Town Secrets, and that has been uh, this edition of Your Small Town Secrets. And that is the show, and a massive one it has been. And I'd like to thank everyone for taking the time to sit down and listen. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of other stuff. Go through those show notes. You'll find some just so much rabbit hole, so much juicy, juicy rabbit hole to uh, fall down, fall down yourself. Um, I've linked everything, all the books, all the YouTube videos. Like there's even a YouTube video from uh, the lawyer, Herber, that he posted. The only other video I ever posted beside the John Tyre letter was like uh, a video that appears to be like a teaser to some sort of John Tyre movie, um, which is interesting to watch. Like you'll see it is. It's very interesting to me because I watched it one time like, oh, this is like some sort of someone wants to make a movie and this is like a teaser for it. And uh, then I was like, I need to go back and rewatch that and look because they show all you really see is like the machine, like the time machine. And, it, you know. And I was like, I need to go back and look at that because it would be really, really telling if the time machine in this trailer looks like looks exactly like the machine that was in in the uh, in the tighter post and stuff. But here's the great thing. It doesn't look like it at all. It's like so it's not the same prop or whatever. So very interesting stuff like the story behind these these two stories is really the more interesting story. You know, it harkens back to the old time of conspiracy theory. Um, and if you know anything about John Tenney, he talks about this a lot, about how, like, conspiracy theory used to just be a fun thing that no one really took seriously. It was just fun to joke about. Like, you know, like, earlier in the episode, I very easily was able to tie current events to predictions that John Titor made without too much trouble. And 10 years from now, I'll probably be able to do it again with another, you know, series of events you know, but, you know, John Tenney used to talk about how they would just joke about, like, well, if you, if, you know, if Area 51's real and all these people work there, who takes out the trash? You know, just questions like that. Like, let's see how much of the, let's see how many of the threads we can link and maybe how, how outrageously we can link them. And that's what these stories are to me is that they just, they, they harken back to that day when you could take this, an outlandish idea. Uh, make you think a little bit, but also, you know, take it with a grain of salt and have fun with it. And there's a lot of a lot of things out there now that uh, people I think are taking it far too seriously and just need to take back and and look into it for themselves and see where the origins of it really are. Uh, there are, like I said, I'm sure that there are conspiracies out there that are real and uh, probably need more attention than they get. And I think, but I think a lot of them are just these outlandish stories that may or may not be true, but damn it, they're fun as hell. And that's what this episode has been about. And it's been a blast. And I thank everyone for uh, tuning in, like it's a fucking radio station, I still say that, and listening and continuing to support the show. So, like I said, hop onto the Patreon. That's the best way to support the show financially. Uh, but you can also go to SDS Cast and. Uh, go in the merch tab and buy uh, a shirt and all this, you know, we got, uh, what else we got in there? We got a coffee mug. We got stickers. I'm going to be making a a shirt for Point Pleasant because I have a very cool picture 
of of the of the the power plant outside of town, the infamous power plant. As we were driving out of the TNT area, we took this picture. It's very blurry because it was shot at night, and I was still driving when my friend took the picture. But like you can see the the red lights on top of the the smokestacks of the power plant glowing like red eyes, and then the the black night the negative space between the plumes of steam look like wings and it's like the mothman is flying right towards us you know uh so solve the mothman mystery everyone it was just it was just steam from the power plant and some lights the entire time but no no really it's a it's a really cool picture and i think i'm going to make a shirt out of it and throw that on the store but other things you got a story an experience that you want to share you can do it on the website. There's a order form at the bottom of the page that you an order form, an email form at the bottom of the page that you can fill out and you can send to me. Uh, you can get at me on the social medias, uh, most active on Twitter, which is at stscast. Uh, Facebook is also at stscast, and I'm on Instagram at stscast.gram. And uh, yeah, we can do all that. We'll get it on the show. We'll talk about it. Skype interview. Send me a story. Write me up a story. You can record your own audio file. No one's done that yet, but I want someone to. That way I can just slap it in here. I don't have to do anything. Um, And we can get it on the show. And so thanks, everyone, for listening one more time. Uh, I'm I'm done rambling on. So remember, until next episode, every town has a secret. What is yours? What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.